you know, I have never been to dog races, okay? I just haven't. But basically, as I understand it, a bunch of really fast dogs line up. And then they release a mechanical rabbit, and it takes off. And no matter how fast these dogs run, they can never catch the rabbit. They just run and chase the rabbit, not realizing that when they get to where they think the rabbit is, the rabbit will be somewhere else. Now, I didn't say they were smart dogs. I said they were fast dogs. Listen, if a dog ever actually catches the rabbit, that dog will never race again. Because once he catches it, he realizes that it's not what he thought it was. So they will never race again. And at times, I feel like we are like these dogs. We are chasing the rabbit of success. We are going after it so strong, but never quite catching it. You know, one time a reporter asked John D. Rockefeller, easily one of the wealthiest men in history, how much money is enough? And his reply was interesting. He replied, just a little more. Just a little more. Somehow you always need just a little bit more. A little more money, a few more things, a position higher than the one that you have, climbing up further in the corporate ladder. And when you get there, when you catch that rabbit of success, you realize that it's not what you thought it was going to be. Do you identify with that? Have you ever accomplished a great goal only to find out there was still something missing? There's still something missing. Your dream was one day to make it to supervisor at your company or CEO or manager. Maybe your dream was to be valedictorian of your class or student body president. You dreamed of the day you would have the little house with the white picket fence and two kids and a dog. You dreamed of having a lot of money a big house, nice car, wearing all the right brands. You dreamed you would hold a position of great influence and respect, and people would look up to you, not because you were tall, but because you were important. Now, after years of working hard and spending all of your time and energy and striving, you're finally there. You arrived, and yet still something is missing. Money by itself is not enough to make us happy. The impressive title, the promotion, the new business cards, the big office, they don't bring you joy. The attention, the money, even the fame isn't enough to keep you going. You just have to have more. You aren't happy when you finally reach your goal because stuff doesn't last. Promotions come and go. Attention is fleeting. No matter how much you have, you always want more. It always takes just a little more. You may have been coming to church or watching online for a long time. You find yourself drawn here. You're checking out the God thing because nothing else seems to satisfy. People looking at your life would think, man, they are really happy. They have it all. They are so put together. Look at them. And you wish that was true. But if you've been trying to fill your life, if you've been trying to fill your empty soul with money, power, fame, or position, you know it doesn't work. 
You can climb to the top of the world and still feel empty. Maybe you're searching for purpose and meaning. Maybe you reached your goals, but then you blew it. Your dreams are dead. But you know what? It never really brought satisfaction anyways. Something is still missing from your life. And you may not even know what is missing. You just know it's not there. And you know that no matter what you're doing, you are not becoming fulfilled. You will never know true joy, peace, and fulfillment without the presence of God. No matter how much you have, no matter what you achieve, it will never be enough because there is nothing like God's presence. This morning, we're looking at the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And let me set the stage. David had been anointed king by Samuel. He was to be the next king. Now, that made the current king, Saul, very unhappy. Because if you're king, you don't want somebody else replacing you. At least that's the way I hear it. And David spent years running away from Saul. And I bet he dreamed of the day when he would finally accomplish his goal. He would finally be king. He would finally occupy the rightful position that he had been anointed for. Now, finally, after 15 years of running, David was made king of the most powerful nation on earth. He had everything. David was a hero. He had the throne. He had the palace. He had the servants. He had an entire army. And it should have been the greatest time of David's life. But something was missing. Position, money, and stuff didn't satisfy. David discovered that he couldn't be satisfied without the glory, blessings, and presence of God. Jerusalem, the holy city, the city of God, had been without the presence of God for a long time. It was now different. They no longer had the glory. They no longer had the Ark of the Covenant. And for David and for Israel, it was time to bring back the glory of God. So David and 30,000 men set out to get the ark, but it didn't quite work out the way he had it planned. You see, David tried to take a shortcut. He disobeyed God's instructions for carrying the ark. So instead of it being carried on the shoulders of priests, David loaded it on a cart and decided, hey, let's get this journey going. Let's bring back the glory. See, his motive was right, but he disobeyed God's instructions, and that never leads to blessings. It never leads to blessings. So there was a car, it was hurrying along, and it hit a bump. And Uzzah, in violation of God's instructions, reached out to steady it so it wouldn't fall off, and God struck him dead. And David was afraid, and he left the ark over there with Obed-Edom. Now, Obed-Edom became wonderfully blessed. His businesses were blessed. His cattle was blessed. His family was blessed. Everything was going great for Obed-Edom and his family. But you see, David had disobeyed God's instructions, so he experienced discipline. And it's never fun to experience discipline. If you have children, you understand you tell them what the consequences are going to be, and you look at them in the eyes, and you say, look, if you do this, this is going to happen. And then I don't know about your kids, but my kids, it's almost like a challenge. 
You know, they look at you in the eye, and then they do it. And then you're like, all right, come here. You're going to experience the consequences. No! If you have teenagers, if you ground them, what do they say? It's not fair. And you're like, but you knew the, con you knew the consequences, right? Right? And it's like, surprise. And you're like, no, friend, no. Remember, we had this conversation. Here are the rules. Here are the consequences. If you do this, this will happen. Why are you surprised that these are the consequences? And see, that was David. Not only did he experience discipline, but somebody else was receiving the blessings. And like anyone that receives discipline, David was not happy. He was like, God, that's not fair. Isn't that what we say when we disobey God and he disciplines us? God, it's not fair. But you know what? You especially get mad whenever that happens, and then you see somebody else receiving the blessings that you should be receiving. See, when we disobey God with our money and we refuse to tithe, and as a result, we experience the discipline of God in that area of our lives, even as we watch others around us being wonderfully blessed. You disobey God in a relationship. You cheat on a spouse or stay in a relationship you shouldn't be in or leave a relationship you shouldn't have left. And no surprise, you fail in relationships. That's what happens when you disobey God. And then you see others around you being blessed. And we react just like kids, just like teenagers, with anger. You covet and you criticize others' blessings instead of recognizing their obedience and their sacrifice. You should realize the reason I'm not experiencing the same blessing and more is because of my disobedience. It's foolish to want the blessing somebody else enjoys unless you're willing to match their obedience and their sacrifice. Because if you disobey God, you shut up the blessings in your life. Those blessings are not restored until you return to the place of disobedience and you obey. Listen, if you want to experience the presence and the blessings of God, go back to the last thing God told you to do. Go back to the last word you received from God and be obedient. Do it. That's what David did. Listen, when he heard about everything going on and all the blessings in Obed-Edom's life, David made the connection. Ah, I disobeyed God, and it resulted in misery. But those blessings are still available to me. Because no matter how we disobey, those blessings are still available if we go back and we obey. And David realized that. And he said, I'm going to get back on track. I'm going to do this right. I'm going to obey God and experience the blessings. So once again, David decided the glory has to come back to Israel. God had to be restored. The presence of God had to be restored to Jerusalem. It was time to bring back the Ark of the Covenant. But this time, David went about it a little bit different. The process is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. It's found in 2 Samuel Chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, it says, Now King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went down and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. 
Now you read the story and you barely pause at that point, but I want you to consider it for a few minutes. The distance David and his men had to travel was about 15 miles, which doesn't seem very far. That's about from here to Grosbeck. If you're driving in your car on the interstate, it should take you about 13 and a half minutes to cover that distance. Some of us cover it a little bit faster. Speeding tickets. Whew. Glad Chet's not here this morning. He'd be like, it takes about two and a half hours to jog. It would take me forever, y'all. I would not survive. I could not jog 15 miles. But it would take us walking 15 miles about four or five hours. So you could leave after breakfast and get there by lunchtime. But David and his group were quite a bit slower than that. Look at the verse again. When those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Most translations say an oxen and a sheep. So priests were carrying the ark, and it was not light. It was pretty heavy. So let's assume they were tall priests, like tall like Jason. And you know that tall people take long steps, and us short people struggle to keep up, okay? Okay. So let's assume these were tall priests, okay? And let's say that even though they were carrying something heavy, each step was three feet or one yard in length. So the entire procession stopped every six steps or every six yards. So this parade bringing the glory back to Jerusalem stopped 293 times each mile. They, so over the course of their 15 mile journey, they stopped 4,400 times to make a sacrifice to God. And every time they stopped, they sacrificed an ox and a sheep. Can you imagine how long that must have taken? Remember, this was Old Testament times. If you sinned, you were required to bring a sacrifice to God. An animal had to be killed and offered to God. So David sinned the first time, and he tried to retrieve the ark. So now David and the priests sacrificed to, made a sacrifice to God and asked his forgiveness. But not just one sacrifice. Every six steps, they stopped and they built an altar. Now, there were specific rules for the sacrifices. An altar had to be built, and it had to be big enough to fit an ox. Now, I don't know about you, but I see cows all the time, and they're pretty big, okay? And for, it, for you to build an altar, it probably had to be made out of stone and wood, and then you had to drag the animal from the herd, you had to slit its throat, let the blood drain, you had to cut it, you had to put it up in the altar and let it burn. But not just for the ox, also for the sheep. So you had to do it twice. So it was pretty gruesome. It was pretty time consuming. And I know it seems brutal and awful, but God knew it was an imperfect system. That's why he sent Jesus to be our once and forever sacrifice. But if we look and let's say, okay, these guys, they were pretty good at building altars, and they were pretty good at the sacrifice thing. I mean, that was their job, okay? They were professionals at it. So let's assume that it took them only 15 minutes, even though that's pretty optimistic, okay? So if it took them 15 minutes, they could do it that quickly, 4,400 times would only take 66,000 minutes or 1,100 hours. 
If they were able to move that quick, it would take them 45 days, 19 hours, and 55 minutes to make the 15-mile walk to Jerusalem. That's assuming they walked 24 hours a day and didn't sleep. So it didn't take them just a couple of hours to bring back the presence of God. It must have taken them at least a month and a half because every six steps, every six yards, they stopped, a fire was built, and the sacrifice was made. Remember, this was messy business. They were killing animals, big animals. And can you imagine the smell, the smoke, the sounds of the, all the animals, the odor that filled the air, the smoke from 4,400 fires filled the air for miles around. And Israel's, enem Israel's enemies, neighbors, people in Jerusalem, they must have seen them. You know, it's hard to miss a fire, right? Especially that big. And I'm sure that when they saw the first fire burning, they were like, yeah, maybe it's just a brush fire, which is common in that area. Or, yeah, maybe it's just one guy making a sacrifice. But after 500 fires, I think they knew something was up. After 500 fires, I think that people started noticing. I think that people from Jerusalem realized what was going on and came to join the procession. I think that the enemies surrounding them were like, hey, we need to send some spies and see what is going on in Jerusalem. Because, like, that's a lot of fires. What is going on? Can you imagine the emotion? Every six steps for a month and a half, this procession stopped. A sacrifice began. They lifted their voices. They lifted their hands. Listen, I don't know what they sang, but I imagine that it was something like this.
Which out of acclamation And take me home What joy shall fill my heart Then shall I bow In to Jerusalem, the, the city of God. The glory is back. Can you imagine? I can see almost everybody in the city shouting. I can hear it. Just that magnificent procession because the glory of God was being restored. See, the first time David went to retrieve the ark, he was in a hurry. There was a timetable, goodness. He loaded it on a cart. He wanted there as fast as it could get there. It's almost like, hey, I got to get the glory to Jerusalem. Like, God, I'm king now. I got a nation to run. I got things to do, man. I got enemies to conquer. I got a nation to rule here. Let's speed it up. See, the first time David wanted God to act on his timetable. David wanted God to do things when David said it. This time it was different. Here's the part I find interesting. The rules for carrying the ark from one place to another did not require a sacrifice. They didn't. But King David offered the sacrifice, asking for forgiveness. And this time he was not in a rush. See, if David had taken the right steps the first time, it would have taken them less than four hours to make that trip. So now David was sending a message to God, to his enemies, and to the people of Israel. Listen, it's God who brought me to this place. God was in charge when I was on the run. And God is going to be continuing to be in charge while I sit on this throne. Because nothing is going to matter more than the presence of God. We're going to do whatever it takes. No price is too high. We're going to shut down the whole nation for six weeks if we need to. We're going to do whatever it takes, but we need the presence of God back in Jerusalem. 
It's the picture of a leader establishing the priority for a whole nation. See, David was saying, none of my accomplishments matter. In fact, my job as king doesn't matter. We have peace, we have prosperity, we have money, we have possessions, we are mighty rulers over our enemies, but none of this satisfies. The only place we can truly be fulfilled is in the presence of God. It doesn't matter what we accomplish. It doesn't matter if people see me as a success. What matters is his presence. Let's bring back the glory. See, we come to church and we bring all of our priorities. We bring all of our problems. Everything that we have felt this week or maybe we've been dealing for years. And we come. We dedicate 70 minutes to God. And I want to congratulate you on that, on your maturity. You get here on time. You stay the whole time. If I go over, you don't leave early. Thank you. Listen, the Israelites spent a month and a half straight in God's presence. They wanted the glory of God so much that time for them didn't matter. Their priorities were reflected in their actions. Listen, their priorities were reflected in their actions. This is the only time it happened. It never happened again, not when they dedicated the temple, not at any other time in history that this happened because it wasn't a formula. It was an attitude of the heart. Listen, it's not about a length of time. It's about priorities. It's about a mindset. David and the people of Israel decided this time we're not in a hurry. We just want the glory. Nothing mattered more than seeing the glory and the presence of God restored. Can you imagine if that was our priority as a church? All of us, every week? What would church service be like if nothing else mattered but the presence of God? It's not the building's too hot or too cold. Oh, my family has issues. You know, we had meltdowns on the way to church. It's raining. You're having a bad hair day. Dry shampoo, it helps. No, it doesn't matter if I got a flat tire on the way, I woke up late, you had a horrible week, everything went wrong. None of that matters. Because as soon as we walk through these doors, our focus would be on the glory and the presence of God. Let's put the, mom, the moment in context. Can you imagine a service where every few minutes we stopped and we worshipped? Our sacrifice would not be one of animals and blood. Jesus paid the price on the cross. Instead, Hebrews 13:5 instructs us to continually offer God a sacrifice of praise. What would church be like with that kind of emphasis? What would it look like to focus on the presence of God that way? What would your life look like if you had that kind of concentration and priority and desire to see the presence of God? See, we're always in such a hurry. I think there's times when God is saying, hey, hold on. Relax. Take a chill pill. Sit back. Let me spend time with you. Let me just spend time with you. Let's talk. Have you ever had a kid tell you a story? Or they're asking you questions and it's nonstop? And it's been like 20 minutes and you're like, eh, yeah, yeah. I think sometimes we're like that with God. We're telling God all of these things. And then we're like, okay, bye. And God's like, yeah, yeah. 
no, I, I had something to say. But you were in such a hurry that you didn't stop to listen. See, it requires that it's a two-way conversation. Yes, we talk to God and, and, and we share with him and, and we pour our burdens out. But then there has to be a time when we listen back. And God may speak through us through a song. God may speak through us through a scripture, but we have to stop and listen. Sometimes God's like, listen, I want to answer your prayers. I want to give you that hope that you're searching for. But you got to stop and listen. Spend some time with me. You know, I think as, as we grow up and, and our focus shifts and we become parents, sometimes we look back when we were teenagers and you're like, God bless my parents for loving me, <laughs> for putting up with me. Because some of the stuff that I did, man, I'll never remember. We had Josiah, and he was probably only around one or two. And my father-in-law came to visit, and it was bedtime. And if you follow me on Facebook, you saw my post about my kid that gets up 20 times a night to tell us we love you and to ask if ducks have arms or whatever. And so Josiah would come out and, good night, I love you. It's like, okay, good night, I love you, go to bed, right? It's past your bedtime, go. Not five seconds later, here he comes again. Okay, I love you, good night, okay, bye. Multiple times, Jason and I are getting frustrated. Glenn, my father-in-law, is cracking up laughing, going, that was you, to Jason. And I'm like, see, they got it from their dad. I was an obedient child. I'm my daddy's favorite. We are thankful that we get to spend more time with our parents if we still have them. I think that a parent's greatest joy is their child spending time with them. I think what we seek most is that acceptance from our fathers, from our parents, to just spend time with them. And that's God. He's our father and he wants to spend time with us. He wants to love us and he wants to heal us in his presence. He wants to give us what we need for the week. He wants to prepare us for what's coming, but we need to spend time in his presence because nothing matters more than that. Don't rush the presence of God. Listen to me closely. I'm not saying that we're going to have four-hour services, okay? That's not it. I'm saying that when we put God first in our hearts, in our minds, in our priorities, in our schedules, then we position ourselves to realize the presence and experience God's glory and thereby experiencing his blessings. See, I've never heard stories like this. We were hurrying to finish our service and go to the restaurant when all of the sudden we felt the presence of God. I was rushing in my prayer time and I felt his presence and then I hurried away to finish my day. I was hurrying to leave church early when all of the sudden I sensed the presence of God. See, those stories don't happen. David stopped every six feet 4,400 times spread out over weeks of time. And each time he stopped, he sacrificed an oxen and a sheep. See, this was an expensive procession. If you calculate the cost nowadays of a good-sized oxen and a good-sized sheep, I'm not a farmer, but according to Google, 
David's sacrifices would have cost over $15 million. $15 million. But when it came to worship, David didn't worry about the cost. He didn't. The glory of God was worth it. The goal far outweighed the price. David spared no expense in his worship. And I know you may be asking, but $15 million for his presence? If you were living in Jerusalem and you had gone years without the presence of God, you would pay any price to get it back. See, it was supposed to be a sacrifice. That's what it was called. And it's only a sacrifice if it costs you something. It costs you to worship. It costs us time. It may cost your comfort or your preference. It costs you your pride because the essence of worship is humility. We only worship something that is greater than ourselves. Every sacrifice is an, every sacrifice is an act of worship. And it has a price. Verse 14 says, David wearing a linen ephod. See, David put on the garment of a priest, a linen ephod to lead the procession. He knew his faults and he knew his failures. And he knew he had messed up in his previous attempt to bring back the ark. But he got himself ready. The linen represented purity. David prepared himself physically and spiritually to assume the role of a priest. Even though he had failed, David knew he had to worship. See, our failures don't disqualify us from worshiping God. Our failures don't disqualify us from seeking his presence. They don't. David knew he wasn't pure in and of himself. He knew that, but only through the grace of God. See, David made no excuses in his worship. What excuses do you make? I had a tough week. I just don't feel like it. I'm tired. It's not my style of music. It's too loud. It's too soft. I don't know that song. I just don't fit in. Man, this week I've let God down. Man, I've messed up way too many times. Listen, come on. Worship is not about what your week was like. Worship is about what God is like. That's what it's about. Worship is not about whether you've let God down. It's about or it's because God can pick you up while you worship. Worship is not about how you feel. It's about what God has already done for you. Worship is not about how much energy you have. Because my Bible says that they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. Listen, worship is not about the style of music. It's about the God that created music. Worship is not about volume. It's about passion. Worship is not about whether you've done wrong this week. It's about the God that can make all things right. Worship is more than a song. It's a sacrifice to God. Like David, we need to leave our excuses behind. Can you imagine taking those excuses up to heaven? I mean, like, listen, God, I was going to worship you, but the words were not up. I'm so sorry. I don't know what to tell you. God, I was going to worship you that day, but, you know, my arm was tired and just sorry. I didn't drink enough coffee that day. We need to leave our excuses behind. 
We have to make the decision to worship God. See, when I think about sacrificial worship, I remember Wendy and Jermaine as a health trooper in the NICU, three days old, getting ready to say, see you later. And they were worshiping the whole time as they sang, thy will. Here were parents facing the toughest thing that anyone can go through, saying, see you later to the three-day-old. And they worshiped because it was not about their circumstances. It was about who God is. David wearing a linen ephah danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. Listen, David didn't just dance for a minute and a half. Listen, back in kids' church, we danced to almost every praise song. And I am out of shape, and nothing will tell you more than you're out of shape than trying to hang out with kids. And like the praise song is over, and I'm like, <sighs> and the kids are like, are you okay? I'm like, I'll be fine. Give me just a minute. See, David didn't just dance for a minute. He danced before the Lord for a month and a half. He had to be one worn-out king. He didn't walk in that procession. He danced the entire time. And trust me, dancing takes a whole lot up more energy than walking does. I'm out of shape. Trust my words. See, David spared no energy when it came to worshiping God. He gave it his all. There was a lot at stake for him. The glory of God was coming back to Jerusalem. God's presence was going to be felt and it was going to be known, not just in Jerusalem, but in all of the cities around them. People would know that the presence of God was back. Now, listen, I'm not telling you how to worship, okay? We all have different styles of worship. We all have different backgrounds. We were all raised in different churches. But however you worship, give it all you got. Give it all you've got. Don't leave any energy behind because the very best place where you can use your strength is in worshiping God. See, this was a noisy, messy procession. They were shouting, they were dancing, they were playing instruments every which way they could think of to worship God. They did. See, I think sometimes we get hung up about how we look, how we sound, or what other people will think. Now listen, I know myself, okay? God did not gift me with a singing voice. And I am sure that if you sit close to me, you can hear me and I apologize. But you know what? Sing anyways. Because it doesn't matter what it looks like. Worship anyways. Because you're not doing it for my benefit. You're not doing it for your neighbor's benefit. We're doing this for God. We are doing this for him. Whatever it looks like for you, worship God. See, another one, I always say my favorite stories, but you all, the Bible has some amazing stories. See, sometimes we come in and we're like, man, we're just going through a really rough time. Life this week has sucked. Like life this week, this month, this year has been miserable. I don't know how I can survive. But then I, then I think about Paul and Silas, they were arrested, they were beaten, they were put in prison, they had 
chains shackling them down. They were in jail, y'all. And it says that at midnight they began to sing. At midnight they began to lift their voices up. They sang. They didn't care that they were in prison. They didn't care about the day that Jess had had. They didn't care that their bodies were beaten and broken and tired and exhausted. They didn't care that they were chained up and they had no clue what was going to happen the next day. They worshipped anyways. And you know what the amazing part of that story is? The Bible says that when they did, not only did their chains come off, everyone else's chains in that jail came off as well. Because when we worship and we get in the presence of God, I don't know how long they sang. I don't know how long it took for them singing for those chains to fall off. But I know this, when they did, there came a point where the presence of God fell in that prison and everybody around them was set free. See, when we worship God with that type of focus, that type of energy like David, not holding anything back, not caring about the cost, something happens in your life. Something happens inside of you. Those things that you have been dealing with, God begins to break those chains. God begins to speak hope into you. And because you're praising God, not only will your chains and your circumstances in your life be changed, others will be impacted. Sing anyways. Shout anyways. Because life doesn't satisfy. Because money and positions will never fulfill you. Things can never take the place of God. Only in His presence are we going to find real peace and joy. So this morning, I want you to stand up with me. And I want you to give it your all. No matter what it takes, let's worship. Let's worship.